Welcome to Everything Imaginable, the podcast for curious minds from KGRA Radio. And here is your host, Gary Cochilillo. Welcome everyone to another episode of Everything Imaginable. I'm your host, Gary Cochilillo, and today we have Janet Polito on our show. And uh, we both have really difficult Italian names. <laughs> and, and Janet is the creator of um, the, the Dream Tarot. Or the Mystical Dream Tarot. Mystical Dream Tarot. Um, and I was looking at the deck online, and, and the really beautiful cards, and they kind of have a little bit of, um, I don't know, to me, sort of like a, a, a Van Gogh type of look to them and feel. Okay, well, interestingly that you mentioned that, because we all know that, well, maybe some of us know, Van Gogh's imagery was very imaginal. Um, he wasn't looking to copy the waking world the way that he saw it, but the way he felt. Mm -hmm. And the images for my mystical dream tarot rose from dreams. I'm not an artist. My, my mom, my mother was a professional artist and designer, but mine is all just intuitive painting in the morning. I will have a dream. I'll get up. I will spend often an hour or two writing the dream, telling the story of the dream. And then I'm usually moved to paint it to draw it in, in, uh, in ink and black and white, or to basically take out my watercolors and make a painting. The cards actually have an interesting background. Not only do they come from my dream reality, but I was not one who played with tarot cards. So I had no background in that. As mm -hmm. a child, I read playing cards. My mother was an amazing intuitive, um, a great psychic and knew very much about what was going on in every one of her children's lives. So we definitely knew nothing could have been pulled and done without her knowing about it. And I, that's something I've inherited from her even as a child. I, my oldest memory was dreams and certainly playing playing cards. We didn't have the money for tarot cards. And it wasn't until I was much older that I looked at some of the tarot cards in the wonderful bookstores as fact, when I was going and doing my doctoral degree in science, the great Wiser bookstore was on, on the, the, the corner right near New York University. Uh, it was on Broadway. And I had mm -hmm. no money, Gary, at the time. So I would walk in and smell the books and look at the images on the tarot. But I have to admit, I had no background. So fast forward to a second doctoral degree. And the degree is in transpersonal psychology which for most of your viewers, I can explain, is the psychology that deals with altered states of consciousness and experiences that are beyond the norm. Uh, experiences of psychic phenomena, of mediumship, of talking to the deceased, um, of divination, of seeing something in the future. Uh, everything that's in altered state, past life regression, seeing something, deja vu, an individual who studies for a transpersonal psychology degree is looking at what normal psychology would call a little bit of the fringe, mm -hmm. the, the extrasensory perception. Thus, as it happened, I'm doing the doctoral degree on dreams, 600 pages of my own dreams that I'm interpreting and, and I'm trying to come with the iconography of the meaning. 
what do the images actually come to say? Because the language of the dream is not an articulated language like I'm speaking right now to you. Mm -hmm. It's a language of image. So the image arises, and rarely is it exactly what you're seeing. It's, it comes to awaken your memory to something. And suddenly then you'll understand what the dreams mean. There's a series of images. There's characters that come. There's a place and there's action. And during my study, I worked with Eugene Taylor, which was the foremost William James scholar up at, at Harvard University. That was the chair of my degree. I said to him, Eugene, I'm waking in the morning and not only am I you know, drawing the dreams and I'm writing them down, they're telling me they're tarot cards. And I laugh because I don't read tarot cards. Why would the tarot cards be coming? I said to him, should I ignore that? Should I go on? He said to me, no. He said, what I'm going to tell you to do is pay full attention to that. And I'll explain when you're finished. Well, the time went on. And when I was finished, I had 78 cards that came. And they didn't follow any sort of rule as the normal uh, tarot would follow where about a hundred years ago, well, even more than that, we certainly have tarot cards that appeared with their beautiful images during the Renaissance. And most people don't realize tarot comes from the Italian and it certainly yeah. just means playing cards, period. Um, yes, they were used for divination, but suddenly about a hundred years ago, we've got the golden dawn appearing. We, we've got Crowley appearing. We've got Rider Wade appearing. And we suddenly have images and symbols from the Western esoteric tradition where during time, certain people in a certain place looked at an image and from that image, they said, this is the meaning we're going to take. So for instance, if, if the viewers are familiar with an Ankh, an Ankh is a, a symbol from ancient Egypt. It looks like a circle with kind of a square underneath it with the, the cross. Well, somewhere in time, someone looked at that image and said, this is going to be the symbol for life. Well, this is a particular people in a particular time giving symbols. And those of our, our listeners that are doing tarot in a conventional manner are following something where the symbology has taken on meaning because of a certain tradition, a certain background, a certain landscape. And yet, in dreams all around the world, not everyone has that same background. We all come from a different background. We come from a different history and different folklore and different mythology and different symbols. My mother, who was an amazing psychic, every morning would discuss her dreams and we would listen. And she had certain meanings on those dreams. Gary, those meanings are not the same as mine. And right. yet she was my mother. If she went down the stairs in a dream, bad, something terrible was going to happen. If she saw a spider in the dream, something terrible was going to happen. For me, the spider is the weaver and something wonderful is going to happen. And if I go down the stairs, I'm going deeper into the unconscious. I'm going to learn more. I'm going to discover more. So we go back to the cards. I've got 78 cards that came from dream. Those images rose from the dream, and at the time when they rose, which now is over 20 years ago, they had a very specific meaning 
in the dreams, in the time, in the river of life where I was standing. And mm -hmm. at my doctoral defense, my famous words were my first doctorate, I followed the scientific method. You come with a hypothesis, you work with a method and materials to prove your hypothesis, you come with a conclusion, and that conclusion must be repeatable by someone else somewhere. Otherwise, it's not valid. That's the scientific method. It must be repeatable somewhere else. I said, well, in this doctoral degree, I'm telling you, I've disproven the, the scientific method for psychic phenomena. Because what I see today, what the images mean to me today, in 20 years from now, I will be in a different place. Those images are going to remain open and they're going to say something more. And that's the beauty of them because as we look at those cards, any one of the, the viewers and any one of the listeners today that wishes to examine an image and find in themselves meaning can begin to understand the meanings of their own iconography. They can read those cards for themselves and for others because the language of the unconscious, of your intuition, is the language of images. And those images come from memories. And those memories pour forward and will tell you something. Every week when I work with it, I do a two-card reading. I, I look at the cards, and those cards tell me something different each week. There may be grass in the car, and, and one week I'm looking at the grass, and the next week it's the mountains that we have to climb that are speaking to me. And it helps people to understand themselves. And I go back to my doctoral degree. Eugene Taylor was brilliant because as he said to me, the image is it. The image is the key to understanding your own personality, who you are and your path. In the 1930s in Harvard University, there were two individuals, Christiana Morgan and Henry Murray. And they created what was called a tool of our perception. Gary, what it was, was some of the images that Christiana drew and other images that were photographs. And people were asked to look at them. And in looking at those photographs, they found what was in themselves that they needed to understand. There's a classical one of a young boy, and he's kind of sitting with one hand on his, on his head. Looks like he's tired. And there's a violin in front of him. And you ask people, what is this? Well, if you ask me, I will always tell you, you know, it seems to me he's dreaming of playing in Carnegie Hall. This is fabulous. And someone else may say, oh, his friends are playing basketball outside. And he'd really be out, rather be outside, but he has a music lesson and he has to get it over. And someone else says he's disgusted. He is so tired taking these lessons that his mother wants him to take. And he really would prefer not to. It's telling us three different stories based on where people are in their lives. And the question is, okay, you know, you see Carnegie Hall here. Obviously, you're enthusiastic about doing something in your life. You've got, you've got something in the future you want to accomplish. Now, if you want to go out and play ball and you've got a violin in front of you, maybe whatever your job is or your relationship is not making you happy right now. Maybe you need to look for something else. And in the end, if in fact you absolutely hate this and somebody's forcing you to do it, do you have a relationship that's really gone sour? So you see how the image 
It's one image. Yes. Maybe we all see a boy. We all see a violin, a music sheet or whatever. We can all say that's constant. But depending upon who we are and where we are in our life, those images are alive. And that's what I love about my cards and was very grateful that it actually became a bestseller because it was so different from what was out there. And, and right. I, will, I will also add some people hate it because they want right away. They want something that they've already <laughs> accomplished. And how dare I, I come up with something different. But right. that's, yeah, that's the dream tarot. Right. Yeah. I, I was looking at that online. I saw some of the reviews. Do Oh, it's not really a tarot deck. It's an Oracle deck and this and that. Oh, I have and, one and, person. And, 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 I, and I can't stand like, like those type of opinions. Um, like one is, I, I mean, I think like the Rider weight deck is very specific to, I mean, it follows the Kabbalah, you know, it follows an earth very earthy system with the cups and the wands and the air and, and all that um your tarot is based on a dream interpretation or or a dream or like almost like like how things would be on an astral plane rather than a physical plane so obviously it's going to be different yeah and i mean i certainly honor people who want to study for years whether it's the right away, whether it's Crawley, whether it's the Golden Dawn, um, they want to study the Kabbalah, they want to study, but they tend to forget it is a system created by people at a certain time for meaning that was going to help them. And it can continue to help you if that's what you wish to do mm -hmm. with your life. I tend to be one that, you know, doesn't follow somebody else's system. And probably because, as I said, I started out as a child sitting there in front of regular playing cards and no one told me what to do. It was an excuse for my intuition to speak. So I'd sit in front of the cards and see a story that would come. And if that doesn't appeal to someone to go into themselves and learn more about themselves, well, you know, certainly I honor the fact that they want to follow a different system. But you're quite right. I mean, I think there was one reviewer that had about 20 paragraphs ranting and raving because <laughs> who was I to make up a system? And I really didn't make up the system. It came from dream and it exists in every person. And that's what makes it beautiful. As I watch people when I teach and they're getting it and they're really understanding it. And, and I'll sometimes say to them, look, you may look at a picture and it's a lovely picture of, of, a, of an angel, let's say, and she's just standing there and everything looks lovely. And all of a sudden, you're thinking about something very unhappy in your own life. Go mm -hmm. for it. Because that picture is bringing that over. Um, that memory is rising. And it may not seem to have anything to do with the card. That card is calling it forward. So the image is worth more than a thousand words in my language. And as I said, I love it. I love my work. It's, it's what I do every day. I spend hours in dream. My yeah. husband used to tease me that I should get air miles um, simply because the dream world told me so much about mm -hmm. reality. Right. And, and, and we, you bring up an important point is like that they're man-made systems. Like the Rider Waite deck was created by Rider Waite and Pamela Cole. Coleman so they created their own thing who's to say that's the only thing that should be created oh absolutely but people people don't see it and what what I try to tell them is even 
you know, as I go and I give a meaning, even when I do dream therapy, which I do private dream analysis, I will help them to understand by virtue of what I know and I'm seeing. But I always say to them, kind of the Montague Ullman, Stanley Krippner way of, if it were my dream and my voice alone, this is what this dream is telling me. But it is not my dream and it is not my voice to dictate to anyone what something means that comes from a dream. I can only help you to try to awaken in yourself what it means and think about waking up in the morning. I mean, I remember one gentleman who came on my dream chats on a Friday night and he said, well, I, I don't even think I want to mention the dream because it's, there's not enough in it. I said, well, mention it. Let's hear it. And it was him walking into a bakery. He happened to live in Boston. He said, I walked into a bakery that I know and I, I bought a cinnamon roll and that was it. And we went on for a half hour on walking into a bakery and what it means. It's a place of making. It's a place where the yeast rises. Um, there's something going on in your life. And there's a circle to that cinnamon bun. There's, a, there's layers in that as well. Mm -hmm. There's something in your life you're circling around and you're not sure what the answer is. And we did far more. It was 100%. And of course, when he woke up in the morning, he remembered the dream but he really didn't think it had any meaning. He had not recently gone into that bakery. He hadn't bought the cinnamon bun, but look at the meaning. And he was thrilled because in fact, it showed him there was a voice inside himself that was trying to help him to see about something with his life. And, you know, I go back to the ancient Egyptian belief system. And part of it is that the soul is not one entity like our body is one entity. Mm -hmm. The soul is multifaceted, <clears throat> like a great diamond. And only part of it is inside us, depending upon who you read. It's called the ba, the ka. But there's a greater part of our soul that exists in another plane, but in us as our inner voice to help, to guide, to give us the wisdom. So that that inner voice actually is part of us that knows more if we listen. But most people don't know the language. It's like a foreign language. <clears throat> the language that we speak articulate with words is not the language of the unconscious. It's like the language of the Pythia, of the Oracle, of Delphi, and of the ancient places. It's always a riddle. And mm -hmm. we have to work the riddle. And in a way, that's beautiful because it's saying there's a communication between the waking reality and the reality within what I call the dream reality that makes us whole. But yeah, you're right. It's always, no matter where you are, there are people at the basis of different plans, different beliefs, different philosophies. Absolutely. Um, <clears throat> you know, one of the, the, when you mentioned language and interpretation and stuff like that, obviously I have to think about Carl Jung. Yes. You know, and, um, you know, I mean, I can't, I actually, I, I have to admit, I, I don't really understand all of his work and what he was trying to convey other than that, that, you know, there's archetypes and, and, you know, whether those archetypes always mean the same thing to everybody or not. No, I, they I, don't. And I'm, I'm delighted that you mentioned him. 
Um, in my first career, I taught anatomy and physiology in the university. I had my doctorate in science and the neurosciences. And um, at the end of one of my physiology classes for pre-med students, a young man came up to me at the end and gifted me with a book. And it was called Young Man and His Symbols. And his comment to me was, Dr. Pitolato, I have never had a science class with so much philosophy in it. Um, you really belong in the philosophy department. And he handed me this book. And up until that point, I, I hadn't read Jung. I knew about him, but mm -hmm. I hadn't read him. And of course, I hadn't gone on for my second doctorate. And my production of the 600-page Urtex with the images for my doctoral degree, interestingly enough, Dr. Eugene Taylor was part of the group that went to the Jung family with Husanu Shamdasani to say to them, look, the red book is in the vault and somewhere a long time, someone is going to take that out and they're going to publish it. Would you not like to know it's published in the right hands, respectfully in the right time? And so I remember Eugene telling me that he sat in the Jung family home and that red book was in front of him. And he said to me, Janet, you have done what Jung did. Now, of course, Jung did it in calligraphy. He did it with much more expertise than I could ever anticipate. His artwork was exquisite and mine is little scratchings. But as he said to me, you plummeted the, the, the depths of the unconscious. You met the figures, you conversed with the figures. I do shamanic work. So what, he, what Jung called active imagination was a lucid dream actually in waking reality. Most people and most of the traditions like the Buddhist tradition, the Tibetan tradition, talk about the lucid dream as being the, the yogi's akumen. This is when he's reached his height because in sleep at night, he's dreaming and he's lucid, meaning he understands he's doing it. But most people don't realize there's another way to be lucid during a dream, mm -hmm. you alter your consciousness during waking. You go into what's called a shamanic journey, or Jung called it active imagination. And I was doing it intuitively as a child. Gary, you're going to laugh. I spent most of my days in a closet, a toy closet in my bedroom. I used to tell my mother I was going somewhere. And what I learned in that closet when I was a freshman in college, pre-med student, doing the, the, the general courses of the music, the arts that I had to do. I had a history class and I aced that class. That professor, he, he probably would have fainted if he knew most of the information I learned sitting in a closet, going somewhere. And I was going to antiquity. I was learning all about it. And I would tell my mother, well, that's where I'm going to be. So this is what Jung did. Jung altered his consciousness mm -hmm. in waking reality the same way that I teach people and anyone can do. Your one foot is in waking reality with a critical observer. You know that you're in your room, lying down or sitting, but your attention is inside. You're seeing things, you're meeting individuals, and you're interacting with them. That's what Jung did. And when the Red Book was actually released, the Rubin Museum and New York was the host to an entire week of events. And I was invited to every one of them. 
simply because my degree, I had done what Jung did. And, and as I said, not by any stretch of the imagination, anything as beautiful or as wise or as great as this brilliant mind that Jung is. But it was a matter of saying you and I and everyone, Gary, you don't need to read him. You need to take the time to go into a waking dream, to meet the images that come, to converse with them, to write it down, to draw what you can, and you'll suddenly realize your incarnational role. You are far greater than what you think you are. I mean, as a child, as an adult, as an elder, you're not the body. You're certainly not the body. The body constantly changes. But inside yourself is that something that the Egyptians would call the Ka. And that Ka lives forever. It was born from the great womb. And you go to that, that womb when you end. Because the beginning is the end. And the end is the beginning again. And Jung did that. And that's, that's the amazing part. You don't need to read every one of his collected works. I have them. And sitting on my desk right now, I have the black books, which were just released. And I have the great red book um, that I, I got at the actual events. But the fact is, it's his message. He doesn't want you to read the works. It's mm -hmm. his message. Go within yourself. Communicate. And you can do this through the imagery. You can under, if you understand the imagery, you understand the language of the part of yourself that's eternal. Wow. Truly. <laughs> I I think that's really important message that anybody could do it. And it's like your story about being a child and going into the uh, closet and stuff. Uh, it's really interesting because I interviewed somebody yesterday who was a participant in Project Stargate. And um, what he said they would do is they basically would put him in a closet <laughs> with it's completely dark and, 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 and have him listen to these uh, binaural beats that were created by Robert Monroe to create a waking state of altered consciousness and then use that, you know, direct that, you know, for, for military purposes and, you know, stuff like that. Well, you know, as a child, I sang opera and, and loved it. I thought I was going to grow up to write books, um, fiction, and I was going to sing opera, but I never wanted to be on the stage. So it was always behind the curtain. And even as I do the shamanic work, I tell people the story of the little girl who sang Undeldi behind the door in, in my brother's room while my mother's guests would all listen to me. And, you know, I, she, my mother was always told, do not invite me to come back, that anybody's going to tell me how lovely or whatever. I just want them to hear the sound, not to look at me. And so it's interesting that I was able to go in that closet in quiet, and many years ago, Lynn McTaggart interviewed me. And most of the shamanic practitioners had said they use a, a rattle, they use a drum, they use something to mm -hmm. alter their consciousness. And I said to her, oh my goodness, you know, I do that for other people. I don't do it for myself. And I think it is because of all those years, I'm talking about a small child. I mean, I squeezed into a toy closet that had a hot water pipe in the back. And during the winter, I had to be very careful not to hit that hot water pipe. And when I got bigger and couldn't fit into that toy closet, I slid under my bed. Somehow, intuitively, for me, it meant going from the waking room and the world that I saw into a place that was different. But the sound didn't matter. 
But yes, in a laboratory, we know we could take people off the street that know nothing about what our experiment is in eight to 10 minutes of listening to a monotonous type beat. The same way that the ancient shamans did it, they will begin to form mental imagery. And another important thing for people who do not believe in the reality of the imaginal, they often say, it's just my imagination. And I will smile and say, oh, you're right. It is your imagination. Cut out the word just, mm -hmm. because without the imagination, you wouldn't even be able to get out of bed. You wouldn't be able to know where your bathroom was or your coffee pot. You wouldn't be able to start your car. The imagination brings you the information of memory of how to do things. And it also brings you the, the gut information. Candace Pert found all of those opiate receptors along our, our digestive tract. And that shows we have another brain. So when we're saying the gut reacts, we feel something. Mm -hmm. Yes, we go in that state. But Monroe was not the one who invented it. For sure, it was the ancient shaman with a drum. Okay. And the drum was called that which makes pictures interesting because that's what it's about. Um, but anybody can do it. Absolutely. Anybody okay. can do it. And, and, and I also like that um, one of the things is I believe that um, there's, there's different ways to reach altered states of consciousness, obviously. Uh, I mean, I've, I've interviewed a lot of people, um, you know, and, and like, you know, some use uh, psychedelics to do it. Um, others will use, you know, drumming, um, isolation tanks, um, sacred geometry, uh, lucid dreaming. There, there's so many different techniques to do it. And, it can't, it, like, and it's just like the tarot. There, there, there's no right or wrong way. I, I think, you know, some might work better for, for certain people. And it's a good idea. Like if, if one way doesn't work, try another. Well, you know, absolutely interesting you mentioned that. I'm writing a book right now, my next book, which will come out hopefully spring of 2022. Just contract was just signed. And it's called Dreamgate. And I'm trying to open up people to the idea that the dream reality is that altered alpha theta state, which is not just head on the pillow at night during sleep, but any altered state that you can get in through any of those doorways that you just mentioned, Gary. Um, this is in fact, as human beings, every 90 minutes, we go through what's called an ultradium rhythm. And it means it's almost as though the body is saying, okay, you've been in beta waking alert consciousness for the last hour and a half. Uh, now we need a little downtime. Boom. We're gonna snap into an altered state. Most of us don't recognize it. Some might by they're working at a computer and all of a sudden they're thinking of grandma, they're thinking about a friend, they're thinking about a pair of shoes they saw online. And all of a sudden they may be thinking of something completely outside the box. They wipe it out of their mind. That's not what they wanted to do. They go back to work. They don't realize. Um, we, we think that it's something that we've inherited from our prehistoric ancestors. They didn't have homes. They didn't have real shelters. Um, they had neighbors that could be hostile any minute, bring a club and club them over the head. Every 90 minutes, they had a bit of downtime that they didn't have to be on alert. And depending upon the day, it could be longer than a few milliseconds. It could be a few minutes. And during that time, you have a vision. 
I have been in front of my computer and all of a sudden, I know, critical observer, I'm sitting in front of the computer. I know I'm safe. I know I'm in my home. But what I'm seeing is over in Egypt. It's over in England. It's in a completely different space. And I'm an observer on something that's happening. And I've had the opportunity to call my friends in those locations because that's what I've seen. And some people would call it remote vision. Some would call it out-of-body experience. It happened spontaneously. I'm not asking for it, but it's during that ultradian rhythm. I am seeing something else that's real somewhere else. And I explain it as, yes, it's entering that altered state. I don't like the word out-of-body because I like the word expansion of consciousness. We are all thinking that we only exist inside our body. We don't. We have the ability to see further, to understand more, and to be expansive. Um, but yes, anyone can do it through drugs. I, I, that's the only place that I've stopped and would not try. And I have been offered everything <laughs> under the planet um, from my days as an undergraduate when I, I was tested down at the J.B. Ryan Institute and came out to be a very high um, you know, psychic ability. And everybody mm -hmm. wanted to test me and say, Oh, what would you see if you took LSD or if you, and it was all legal back then? No, I said, I'm a mental virgin. I'm staying that way. I know what, what I see. But I will say that you mentioned one thing that reminds me of a very interesting experience. You talked about how, you know, different preparations perhaps could lead to it. Um, the isolation, the, um, you know, putting someone like the Indians would put them on a vision quest. While I was getting my doctoral degree, I did a lot of shamanic work free for the people of the community. And what it meant was that I would take my classes during the day and I have a hotel room where I put a seat out in the hall and the community would come in and one by one during the night, I would take care of them. I would do the shamanic work. So I had Gary an entire week with one or two hours of sleep a night if I had that much. And I gave my lunch and my dinner hour up. So I really didn't eat as well. I mean, I had very little, and I mean this 100%. At the end of the week, the community gave me this one particular year, a gift. And it was a Hindu gentleman who did hair massage. And this was their gift for me, so I accepted it. Someone picked me up at the, at the um, hotel. I went to his place. And all I was to do was to lie down on like a massage table and he was going to work on the hair. Um, this was something that, that he did routinely, I suppose. Well, as I lay down on his table, I felt him put something over my eyes. And I thought, how interesting, because it suddenly I was having this psychedelic experience of gold mandalas in a sea of blue. And I took off and I was seeing Mashabeya in a temple in India. And there was this beautiful, I still remember it. There was this beautiful pond in front of me and there were lotus flowers. And then I saw the image of a goddess that I was unfamiliar with before. She looked like a Tibetan goddess, mm -hmm. um, all in green. Well, the, the experience went on and on. And I finally came back and he, he, he looked at me in surprise. He said, well, I, I, I couldn't wake you up. He said, you know, you've been here hours. 
well, I had no idea. I was outside of time. It didn't feel like hours. He said, so we had to cancel two of the visits because I was supposed to make a couple of visits to community. I explained to him what I saw. He had studied in that Jain temple. And I was explaining what I saw with the rooms and with the inside. And that was lovely. I had picked that up. Now I'm brought to the last person of the night and I get into her place and there's on her refrigerator a, a small picture of a green goddess who turned out to be a Tara. Um, and it was a healing Tara that I had seen. Now I explained to her that there was something else I saw and it was a monk in that crimson robe. And obviously that didn't fit on anybody, I mean, but the next day I was picked up by an individual who brought me for a Tara empowerment. And the monk opened the door and that was the monk that I saw in the vision. And while I was there, he received something that he had ordered 12 years before. It was a big tanka and there were the gold mandalas in the sea of blue. Now, wow. I had no food that week, and I really do mean no, so it's not, I'm not exaggerating. Um, I, I can go for quite a few days, and I've had to in a variety of situations. I can go without food. So from a Monday to Friday, I had no food. I had very little sleep, and I was mostly in the altered state doing the shamanic work for people. I was primed. I spoke to Dr. Taylor because I had a conversation with him probably a couple of months before when I said to him, I believe that the hallucinogenics like LSD, it is an isomer. And to most people, what it means is there's a right hand and a left hand formula, chemical formula. And we know that chemically it disappears from the body before it works anyway. Right. And that we also know from Candace Pert's work, the biochemist, um, Biochemicals of Emotion, I think was her book, or Chemistry of Emotion, that we have opiates in our body anyway. And I said to him, is it not possible that those of us that are the high hypnotizables, that are highly psychic, that somehow we can activate these natural endogenous opiates to have an experiment? And he said, well, yeah, it sounds possible. Well, I explained to him how a friend of mine had this experience. And I said, so Eugene, what do you think initiated the experience? Oh, he said, Janet, you absolutely know what it is. Yes, I said to me, it sounds like LSD. He said, absolutely, it sounds like an acid trip. And then I explained what it was. So you opened the door, basically, that does say, if there's a period of time when you're in isolation, um, you're alone, like the, the desert monks in antiquity, um, that you've, you're denying yourself the food, I think you awaken the opiates within. And I think they're awakened so that you can see something that's truth. Uh, for me, it was all about divination. Everything that happened was the next place that I was going. I was seeing the things that the dream showed me. Um, and of course, I was a student, as I still am a student of life. I believe in those inner places. I don't really believe in using the drugs. I think they can be very dangerous. I think for the indigenous person that it is part of their society, it is part of their tradition 
there's a there's a place for it. But I think for the rest of the world, we need not all take a pill um, to go hopping someplace. <laughs> but we do if we work on it and realize that we have the ability inside ourselves. It just takes a little work, right. and it is worth it. Every inch is worth it. And it also, like in a lot of spiritual and religious traditions, you know, sleep deprivation and fasting are are, are part of rituals. Absolutely. And I mean, mine was not intentional. I was just, I, I didn't have enough time to do what I was going to do. So I would call my husband at home at four or five o'clock in the morning and he'd ask me if I had a good sleep. And I would say to him, well, actually, you know, didn't go to bed yet. I figured I'd call you before I tried to get an hour. Um, but yes, the fasting and, and it does, what it does is it shows you something that for me at that time of my life, everything was about studying the hypnosis, studying the past life regressions. I've always been trying to understand what they meant. Um, even at that time, I was meeting Ethel Johnson Myers, uh, who was a magnificent trans medium. And I have to say, I went there with the belief that each and every one of us has the ability to see somebody passed away. I was only four, holding my grandfather's hand when he mm -hmm. passed. My mother brought me home, and as I ran to my bedroom, my grandfather was sitting there waiting to talk to me. So I thought everyone could see their own grandparents. Why would we ever need a medium? And I went there to kind of prove that all she did was mental telepathy. And she surprised me because it wasn't, it wasn't mental telepathy. And I had a very lovely relationship with her that went on for quite a few years. So yes, there are different ways for people to do things. And we can go to someone else for information. But isn't it nicer not to go and get the fish, but get the fishing rod so that we can <laughs> call ourselves? It is, but I think it's much more cooler to try to do it ourselves. Yeah. yeah. It's kind of funny. Like um, when I was a kid, my grandmother had passed away. And I'll say about two weeks later, I was, I had a paper out and I was delivered to like a factory. It's a weird place to deliver a paper to, but I'm riding through across the, uh, my bike across the parking lot of this factory. And I see my grandmother just sort of drifting across the, the, uh, the parking lot. And she looked over and she waved and, and just kept on going, you know, and I remember like going home and telling my parents about it. And they're like, don't talk about that. <laughs> and, I was oh, like, and that's, you know, that I think, that's part of what happened once they caught made the deal with the devil. Um, you know, spiritual things were shoved in one corner and science was given a very high seat. <clears throat> we certainly know the church got into trouble putting science so high that uh, Copernicus and Galileo were in trouble for telling the truth that now we, we dragged the religion and the science onto the same page and we weren't willing to separate them and we got to that point certainly where <clears throat> going to a psychic going to a medium um if someone was born within catholicism you went to confession because this was not allowed i was very lucky i, I grew up roman catholic but i grew up with a house that had more priests and nuns than the churches had mm -hmm. and they were wonderful good spiritual people and they knew of my mother and they certainly knew of me and I'll never forget one of those monks saying to me, look, you are gifted and don't let anyone ever tell you that this is something that you have to cast aside, you have to ignore. Everyone should be as gifted to see things 
and to know to see them purely. So I, w I actually was brought up in a, a very nurturing atmosphere, both by the church as well as in, in my own home. But I think like you, many people were, don't talk about that. That's not good. You're not yeah. supposed to see it. And it's part of consciousness. We're only half awake if we don't accept that. I mean, how many people look at their dreams as being ridiculous, that they don't have any meaning? And they have meaning. They, the body is made in such a way. Nothing is a waste. Awesome. So I want to ask, I asked most of my guests this, this particular question, and it's sort of a two-sided type of question. Um, uh, one is, the first part is, is the brain, you know. Um, to me, you know, I think it's sort of debatable of actually what the brain actually does, whether it actually acts as a place of storing and recalling information or whether it's an actual, or it's, whether it's an, it acts more like an antenna or a receiver. And, and along with that is reality itself, you know? Um, is it possible, and, and I mean, science sort of leans this way too, in a possibility, um, that this is actually some type of dream? That life is a dream? Yes. Okay, uh, first of all, we'll start with the question on the brain. Are you asking a biologist? One who taught anatomy and physiology. All right, I look at it and say, the brain is a gift as an organizer. The center is the corpus callosum. We have part of the brain that we call the emotional brain. And we have areas of the brain that are parietal, temporal, frontal, occipital, where we see, hear, feel, touch, and interact and communicate with a physical world in front of us. And as it organizes and helps us with that, it is our interface with the world. The brain stem helps us with breathing, with the heartbeat, with the involuntary functions. So the body that we're given and the brain and the central nervous system with its, its neurons that go reach out, sensory neurons and, and motor neurons that react to the world are all there so that we react and live and communicate and navigate through the physical world. Mm -hmm. We come to the intuitive and the understanding of the dream reality. That is the real reality in my view, because that always exists. That's the unchanging. That's where we came from. And that's where we are going back to. And we don't have time probably to discuss it today, but I've had personal experiences from which my, my feelings and my belief system comes. If I would call young, I would say, I know, not that I believe, because usually belief is attached to my trusting someone outside myself that is saying something, but not having the personal experience. Now, I've had personal experiences that have shown me something beyond the physical is what's real, which is why when people talk to me and I say, well, I wouldn't mind if I died yesterday. And if someone came and said to me right now, you got your ticket right now if you want to go, I'm ready because I've been there already. I've had the near death experience. I know what it is, but I do believe that on the etheric level, there's not something physical in the body that we're going to say, this is the organ of the imaginal. 
the best we can come is to say that we have that faculty of the imagination that we can't pin down. That's like a communication antenna that helps us to connect between here and the hereafter, which I like to say is the here before. It's the mm -hmm. time and the place outside of all the reality in front of us. You know, I look at the desk by me and I think it's so physical and I think it's staying here. And yet the physicist tells me that there are electrons whirling around. And if every one of those electrons whirls around in the same direction, this desk can levitate. And I know that. And although it looks firm and solid, it isn't so firm and solid because in years from now, it'll decay and fall apart. And yet we think this is what reality is. We're on a desert and we see an oasis in front of us. It looks like it's there, but it isn't. No, what we see with our eyes is merely to help us navigate and communicate in our waking reality world so that we can get up, put our feet on the ground and know how to drive the car and know where we're going. But I believe the same way that my doctoral thesis, I said, look, my first doctorate, I followed the scientific method, it's repeatable. But if I'm working with the psychic realm, and I think that's what J.B. Ryan, kind of the founder of parapsychology here, I think that's the problems he ran into. It's not repeatable. And if something is not repeatable, I see an image today, it tells me something. I try to understand what the language means. It's moving, it's alive. And it tells me what I need at the time I need but you're looking at the same image, you're gonna get something different. And mm -hmm. what it ends up saying is science is gonna look and say, well, it's not real because everyone would have to look at that image. Everyone would have to look at an unk and say, okay, every person on the planet everywhere sees it and knows exactly what it symbolizes. That's not the case because it's the psychic realm and the psychic realm is gonna tell us something different. According to the language that speaks to us, it's as though each one of us has our own personal cell phone to the divinity beyond us. And I do believe that there's an organizing divinity behind. And I would say as a scientist, although I grew up in a place where there was certainly deep spiritual belief, it was as a scientist looking at the, the cells, taking morphogenesis, that I said, how could anybody study science and think this is all an accident? that this all came out, as Darwin said, because of mutations and survival of the fittest. No, Einstein was right. He said, we, if we believe that, we believe that the New York phone book, the white pages, thousands of pages, could be ripped up, thrown up into the sky, and fall in perfect order. That's what we would have to believe, to think we're all an accident. There has to be an organizing brilliance behind it all, what I call the cosmic beloved. So. Yes, I, I believe the, the brain is important in physical reality in all sensation. Sensation and mentation, our ability to think and to sense, to feel, to hear, to taste, to touch, to smell. But I believe that the psychic is beyond that and you're not gonna pin it down to an anatomical location. Interesting. So you're the perfect person for me to ask you this question. This is for sure. <laughs> Since you have this medical background. Um, so about two years ago, I had a seizure. And um, you know, it, 
you know, I guess it's sort of debatable whether I have a seizure or not. My wife will say no, but I mean, I was definitely, something happened and I was at work and I, and I just sort of passed out for about a half hour and I woke up in the ambulance. And during that time that I was out, I was had an experience where I was basically like in this huge dark vortex of color and sound. And I wasn't afraid. It was really, really amazing. I, I was fascinated by it. And, and, and like when it came, like, you know, and, um, and to me, it was like I had left my body and went somewhere else. And I was in this place where I originally came from. Or at least that's the way I perceived it. You know, and then I heard, you know, my wife yelling at me and I came back and I woke up in the ambulance. Uh-huh. Um, and uh, was that just the experience? Was that just a whole bunch of electrical activity, you know, cooking my brain? Or uh- did I actually have an experience of what it was like before I was incarnated in the body? Okay, there would be two answers depending upon which side of the coin you want to look at. As science would look at it, they will say that there's a diminution of oxygen so that you've got less oxygen going. That's why you passed out. Um, There's some strange electrical activity, neuronal activity, um, often temporal lobe uh, epilepsy where you're falling down and they, they give it a name because it's the temporal part of the body where the firing of the nerves are, might make you see color and feeling. Now, I don't ascribe to that. That's, they are what I call rat behaviorist psychologists who pin everything down to something physical. I, I don't ascribe to that. But I do believe that your experience was giving you the feeling of what the cosmic womb was like. You were safe, you were protected, you were not afraid. Now, unfortunately, all you heard was your wife screaming at you, which was, she was calling you back because she loves you and she wanted you back. (laughs) Um, And some of those experiences, we will actually see something. Um, I, I had several actually, and they were, they were initiated by the altered state. And one of them, one of them was so dramatic because in it, I didn't want to return. What I saw, um, I, I've, lost, I've lost a daughter, a son, and a husband. So my private family is gone. But at that time, I had only lost a daughter. And now I have a son and a husband still living, and I'm having a near-death experience. Most normal people would say, you want to come back to your husband and your son that's there. I'll tell you something. They were on the other side already in a much fuller, brighter, um, shining part of themselves, which is why I, I don't just believe. I know the Egyptians were right in saying there is a brighter, fuller part of ourselves that always stays connected to our place of birth. And it's as though what comes here is only a small part. So what you experienced was the safety and the comfort and knowing it was all all right. What I experienced was 
everybody is there. I want to be there. And they're there in a much fuller presence. Mm -hmm. I didn't want to come back. And on another time, I was in that space as my daughter lay dying for several months. And I was watching it from the ceiling as I heard the voice that said, you agreed to this. Do you remember? And Gary, when I was on the ceiling, I not only remembered, I knew it was a thousand percent okay. They were saying to me, you know, we're taking your daughter back home. You're not coming tomorrow, but you will come eventually. And I said, absolutely, I remember. When I was washed back, this is the middle of the night, as I was kneeling on the floor by her bed because I gave her chemo every week at home. We knew she was dying and it was just palliative. I thought I was the worst parent in the world. How could I have agreed to it? So I also know, no, not believe because somebody wrote it in a book. We agreed to the life that we're living. We're carrying the threads for the tapestry that needs dark and light, that needs health and, and illness, that needs beauty and ugliness and black and white. That all pairs of opposites exist in the waking reality because that's balance. But I heard that voice from October all the way through January when she passed. And in the end, I was the only one when she passed that said, I know it's all right. Now, it's not that I wasn't grieving or feeling terrible, but these are experiences that you absolutely cannot deny. You were in a space of that cosmic womb that says, the real Gary, who you are before your parents decided to call mm -hmm. you Gary, and like me, give us long last names that people have trouble <laughs> pronouncing. I, you know, I had that question as a, a little girl. I sat at my mother's easel and said, my mother is older and beautiful. She's shown me a baby picture of a fat baby. I'm probably four years old. My brothers are, you know, eight, nine years older than I. The teachers are a different age. My little head went in a thousand directions. And I said, so if somebody asks me who I am, a mommy and daddy's little girl right now. I was this fat baby at one point. I was 10 pounds when I was born. And I'm going to be an old lady maybe someday. So who am I? And what's my name really? Because my mommy gave me this name, which I didn't particularly like actually. So think about it. What they showed you was bringing you back before you decided to take on the sarcophagus, the physical body of Gary in mm -hmm. life. And it's the story of Isis and Osiris. Osiris is murdered by his brother. He is sliced into 14 pieces and thrown all around the land. And then he's remembered, remembered. Let us remember who we are, put together by the divine feminine, his wife, sister, Isis. But he had been thrown into that sarcophagus. Isn't that consciousness thrown into the sarcophagus of the body? We've been dismembered, born of the waters of forgetfulness. If you had not had that experience, you wouldn't have remembered what it was like in that watery womb of the nun that gave us birth before we took on a persona. Even if we live 100 years in the millennium that, that exists, that's a drop. That's nothing. Mm -hmm. But who you really are comes from that place. And the Gary that you really are is much brighter, much, much bigger, much more present, is a shining one. The way I saw 
my son, my daughter, my husband, and an amazing group of beings that I didn't want to leave. And I had to come back mm -hmm. because I promised I would come back. So I think you had an experience of an afterlife experience, but what I would call a pre-life experience because the origin is the end and the end is the origin. It's just another birth, um, but an amazing experience that actually gives you a hint about how special that soul really is, the ka, the ka mm -hmm. that's within you, that's the light. And it's not, it's not confined to one particular organ. And, and yes, it's interesting that you say it was, it was like some sort of a, an epileptic type fit, a seizure of some form. Um, because there's a great history of people who have some sort of seizure and they see things during it. And yes, Western medicine and science would like to confine it to a laboratory where they say there's not enough oxygen, there, there are nerves that are firing. And, um, they want to reduce it. I don't really want to reduce it. No, uh -huh. I think it has far more meaning. So, so as a doctor then, would you think it would be wise for me to stop taking the medicine and try to sit in front of a strobe light to recreate it? No, no, because in fact, the danger with, with things like uh, an epileptic fit or a seizure is where you are when it happens. If you're at the top of a stairs, you can fall down and break your neck and you can kill yourself. So you need to be on the medicine. But I would say to you, being given that experience, it doesn't stop you from putting on a drumming tape, putting on something with some rattling, mm -hmm. and closing the doors, tell your wife, don't scream at me, I'm gonna be gone for a half hour, <laughs> um, and allow whatever images wish to come. The biggest mistake people make is, oh, I'm thinking of this, that, and the, I don't wanna think about that, and they're wiping things out when, in fact, the wisdom exists within the imaginal. The images that come are a language. So mm -hmm. I, would, I would recommend that you try to get into the waking dream or shamanic journey. Listen, listen to my Tuesday nights and meeting the, the healing of the ancestors because I do, I do some sort of a, you know, a visual shamanic journey, actually bringing people into a waking dream. But you can certainly do it by virtue of just listening to all online. There's plenty of drumming tapes that are free that you just listen to through your computer right. or, or rattling or gentle rattling, but mm -hmm. it helps. And pay attention to the time before you fall asleep at night and when you just wake up in the morning because they're fertile with the images and the connection to that imaginal realm. That's the voice inside you trying to give you the wisdom. Most people don't pay attention. This is a a period of hypnagogia and hypnopompnia, walking into sleep, coming out of sleep. So even in the bed in the morning, if you wake up and you're not remembering whatever happened during the night, and you do have about five dreams a night, about every 90 minutes, there's a dream. If you want to remember them, drink a nice big cup of tea before you go to bed at night. You're going to wake up right mm -hmm. after one of those dreams and write it down. I, I keep a, a pad by the side of the bed. And I'm up in the middle of the night writing down exactly what I've experienced. And then in the morning, I will work it out. And I, I often pull then, I pull two cards before I go to sleep. I look right. at one, I don't look at the other. And those cards help me to even understand what the dream's about. So 
I wouldn't stop taking my medicine because I think it's very important that you're not having a fit while you're driving a car or you're in front of the stairs. It's important to take it. But I, I would seek that altered state through a waking dream, through a hypnosis, through shamanic journeying um, and paying attention to the dreams because this connects you to the other half of consciousness. You're only half awake yeah. if all you pay attention to is what's around you. You need to pay attention to what's inside, according to how I feel anyway. I totally agree. So you said, and I, one of the things that you mentioned is that we, we chose this mm-hmm. before we came into existence. This is, you know, when I was younger, I was really angry. And like one of my biggest <laughs> cop-outs was like, man, I didn't ask for this life. <laughs> this is crap. You, you know? And then uh then I started the practice of meditation. You know, I started meditating with this Buddhist nun. And and, and actually like, like you know, that went away. You know, I was like, you know what? You know, one, I really don't think I'm really me. <laughs> you know, when I started meditating. And um and I also kind of started thinking like, well, everything that I'm experiencing there's just thoughts, you know? So, so, you know, it's, it's not a big deal whether I asked for this or not. Then I, then I had the seizure, you know, and, and that really made me question. I said, you know what? I, I know I'm not really me, <laughs> you know, and I know this really isn't it. And then after that, I started this podcast and, and over and over and over again with everybody I talked to, you say, you picked this, you, you agreed to this. You agree to it. And I mean, if I, if I think about it, I mean, that, that time with my daughter Jeanette dying, I had to give her the medication in the middle of the night so that I didn't want to really bother her. And she had a Broviac and I would attach the bag. But the hospital would not give me a chaser. I couldn't give saline so that I could go back to bed. And I knew I had 40 minutes that I had to be awake. I was brought up with all of the Franciscan monks. And they wisely had said to me, look, when you say the rosary, which is like mala beads, for goodness sake, Mm -hmm. just say the Hail Mary over and over and over again and go around, you know, three three times. Uh, Make sure you just keep going. And what would happen is on a cold floor in the middle of the night with obviously all the stress going on, the Hail Mary over and over and over was a mantra. And that's when it would take me to the ceiling that I would look down and it was not part of my belief system, but over and again, I remembered when I was up in that ceiling that this was definitely something I agreed to. And then in a vision years after, that was a past life regression, I was working on someone else. I wasn't expecting to have it myself as well. I, I saw my choices. And interestingly enough, I was told they were going to be difficult. Maybe I should change my mind. And I, I was obstinate and thick-headed and bullheaded. And I saw myself in utero. And I suddenly thought maybe I should pay attention to not doing all of this. I turned myself around and I was breech birth, which is fascinating. Mm-hmm. I was trying to go the wrong direction. But then I looked into the belief system itself. And there's a story of, I don't know if you know the story of Ur, the vision of Ur, Plato tells the tale. And it's during the war, and one of the general's sons has been killed in the war, in the battle. 
he's put with the dead bodies to be brought back to Greece to be buried properly in home soil. And they're at a great distance, but when they arrive home, the boy is not dead. And he tells the story, the first story of the near-death experience, actually, and of a pre-death contract. And he says that he was in a place with many people coming and going. They were getting ready to be born, and they were returning. They were, they were coming back from a life. And those who were going were given certain choices, not a carte blanche. So according to the individual souls, they were given certain choices that they could pick. And they picked those choices to be reincarnated. But mm -hmm. then, then they went through forgetfulness so that they would not remember. And life for them was about remembering. And it's interesting in my own life because if I go back, wanted to be the artist, wanted to be the opera singer, and I'm a freshman in college, in high school rather, in a convent school. And the nun talks about DNA and RNA and Watson and Crick. And all of a sudden she's off on her own little aside. And she's saying, you know, someday somebody might find memory. We might find, and she's talking about a physical place um, a, a chemical place, probably in DNA or ribonucleic acid. It was as though somebody hit me on the head because suddenly the student who everyone was saying, major in science, you're bright enough, you should go on, get an MD. I had said, look, I like seeing bodies from the outside, not the inside. Um, no, I'm not going to major in that. I want to I write novels. I stood up, 14 years old, freshman class, general biology and general science maybe, and I walked to that nun, Sister Mary Roche, and I said to her, Sister, I know what I'm going to do with the rest of my life. I'm going to major in biology, and I'm going to discover where memory is. The fact is, to that, from that day, I went on to end up getting my doctorate in biology. I ended up spending the years of study in that area, and then suddenly went back, got a second doctorate in transpersonal psychology. And you know what I still do? I'm looking for memory because I'm looking to remember, to bring together the ideas of who am I, why am I here, and what service do I have to give? Because that's what life really is about. We came to give service, and that's what most people have forgotten. And we agreed to it, but we come from the waters of lethos, of forgetfulness, and we need to remember. And interesting enough also, there's a story of Achilles and Achilles' heel. We all know the Achilles heel. This is our weak place. But do we know where the story comes from? His mother takes him, and in order to give him invulnerability, she dips him in the water Styx. Well, most of us also know the river Styx mm -hmm. is the river of death, and we don't want to go there, do we? Well, right. <laughs> she's telling us she held him by his heel, and the only place that he was not invulnerable was the heel, that was his weakness. Our weakness is the fact that we look at that river Styx as death. It's not, ironically, it's all life. We come from and with it as the amniotic fluid gives us birth. And we flow back, thankfully, because it is our home. It's where we come from, but we don't remember. We've been dismembered like Osiris. I often tell people, if you wanna know the truth, about life and existence, look at the ancient mythology. And it's not the story 
that you're reading on the top line. It's not, it's not the clothing it wears. What is it really telling us? It's telling us about consciousness, right. about being dismembered. And the river sticks. This is where we come from. And this is where you were in that womb. And look where it led you. You decided to do a podcast and one that looks at what many people might say is the cringe. There's no scientific proof for these ex, you know, experiences people have. Maybe they're deranged, maybe they're crazy. I mean, I've heard it all because I come from science and I'm in psychology in certainly what the psychologists would call fringe. And the universe had to laugh when they produced me because as a child, I've had strange experiences that were normal. And so balancing all and trying to say what's real and what's not. Well, I've come to realize real is existing in two different places. The waking reality where my brain and my physical body navigate and communicate and interact with a mm -hmm. physical world that I'm in. Very important. And I have reason, reason and reason important. But that dream reality is the connection to the Ba that the Egyptian saw. This mm -hmm. is who I really am beyond the name Janet. Janet's only here in time and space and through the waters of time. I'm not going to be here that long. So what you saw and what you experienced was the you that's the real you. And it's not that you, Gary, are not real, but you're only mm -hmm. a small part of what's real. That's awesome. You know, and I have to say too, after, you know, having all these experiences, like, like, you know, everything I just mentioned and plus also being with people while they're dying too is, is really powerful. And it, it's really interesting. Actually, I find it interesting and important. I, I mean, I think dying is just as important as being born, but we tend to shy away from it. But, but looking back now on it all and, and looking at my life, I can see why I probably would have chose this life, you know, where I couldn't see that early on before having all these other experiences. But now looking back, I can see, yeah, I, I can see why I would have chose to be me. <laughs> yeah. And, and I, I have to agree where many people might look at me and say, um, my life has been about death. I mean, I, I lost a daughter after five years fighting with cancer. Um, lost a son who went to sleep one night and his heart stopped working the next morning he was gone and lost a husband who within 40 minutes was perfectly healthy to death. So uh, I've experienced all the different sides and I've had the great honor of knowing these people and loving and being loved by them. But also my work is very much working with those who are dying or transi transitioning. Um, you know, I, I studied with Gene Ackerberg and then we became great friends, um, which was spectacular. And Jeannie used to say to me, yes, my, my teacher was death. I walk with death every day. I work with stage four cancer patients. And the one gift I can give them besides creating a, a, a complementary health protocol that will help them to minimize some of the side effects of the, the therapies, the real gift is that they're not afraid at the end because they've been shown that it's just a transition. It's a doorway to another space. Um, that's the gift of life. And yes, there's no greater gift than being present with someone 
who is transitioning and, and trying to show them there's nothing to be afraid of. Mm-hmm. It, is, it is part of true existence, not the temporary existence that comes and goes with the cycles of something physical. So, you know, it is grace. And no, I don't think I would have chosen anything differently than what I have now. Um, even though for many people, this would be the worst horror on the, the life to actually lose just about everyone that had any sort of importance, but I haven't really lost them. They're there for me. And I, I know that, and they're waiting for me. And I'm waiting to go. But in the meantime, I know that there's, there's a message and there's an importance, especially in this modern time when too many people are disconnected and they're connecting to things that are not real. Um, we don't have that extraordinary psychic experience every minute of our life. We, we have to pay attention and navigate the waking world. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, I think there's too many frauds out there and that's scary. You know, I like to dissuade them from that. Yeah. Yeah. That, that is one of the things that I will say bothers me a lot are, are the, are the frauds, you know, one of the things that I come across and it's sort of a pet peeve of mine in uh, podcasting is like, I belong to some, you know, different groups on Facebook, you know, for looking for guests. And it's just swamped with people that call themselves life coaches. <laughs> it just, it, it drives me crazy. They have, they have no real credentials whatsoever. They, they, they publish books that are basically their non-branded material is not even their own. And, and they're asking for people's money. And I'm like, and a lot of them like like will will um say like oh they're they're a death expert or an out of body expert or a quantum expert and it's just like no and they you, you, know, you signed up for a class for like three hundred bucks to get a piece of paper <laughs> that's meaningless you know and I look at it because for my work it really is about finding the truth of yourself. And you're not gonna you're not gonna make any money if you want to just put a sign up that you are now someone who can find the truth of yourself for somebody else. That's not what it is. And I'm not gonna give you a piece of paper. And most people do. I mean, I've Gary this week. I had someone call me, and they thought that perhaps I could teach them shamanism. The the uh, the, the big thing is a soul retrieval and an extraction because they thought they could learn it in three sessions. And I knew, I know where, where they were heading. You know, this was going to be their new website that they were a shamanic expert. And I said to them, you know, it doesn't work that way. It's a, it's a life path. Mm-hmm. I look and I laugh because I say to people, I really know nothing. I said, do you realize that? That's why I've gone for all these different degrees. I still don't know. I don't know anything. I said, I'm learning. And that's what life is about and if you just want to know more about yourself that's that's the method that's teaching if you really want to know who you are and why you're here and how to how you're really not alone you're always accompanied by you know we used to say it's the guardian angel it really is that part of yourself that's connected that still has that silver cord whatever whatever a lot of the the new age people want to call it mm-hmm. to me it's the energy that says this is what makes you alive. I'm, I'm a biologist at heart. I've spent enough years with it. And yet I look and say, 
there's not one organ in the body that's absolutely it at making everything work. Everything is working because of something we're not seeing. Because many of these organs, I take out the heart, it's not working, uh -huh. okay. Cut off the brain, okay, it's not working. You know, slice the nervous system, we're not working. Hey, there's something wrong here, Sellers. And I used to look at the DNA. And the DNA is very interesting to me because especially now today, all the nonsense online, everybody's gonna find out about their DNA. The DNA is made up of codons, units of heredity. And every cell of the body, except for the red blood cell, red blood cell loses its, its nucleus. So it doesn't have the DNA. It's as though we've given it a simple job and we've said to it, that's all you have to know. You don't need the brain anymore. We take it out. Mm -hmm. So we'll put the a red blood cell by itself. But every other cell in the body, which are so diverse and different, they all have the same DNA. That's pretty amazing. Now, that means that different codons are read and activated in the cells. And what it means is that a certain code is read and we call that that it's, it's translated, transcribed, and then it's transformed into a protein that acts as an enzyme to have something made, produced, secreted, or a piece of tissue made. But in just about every cell, we have something called chromatin. And that chromatin is just about rarely, if ever, activated. The body doesn't fill spaces with nothing. And I used to look at it and say, and that is the part that contains everything that ever was, is, and will be. And I used to romanticize, and I have no proof and it's no science behind it, but it was as though every cell of the body has this connection to divinity. And if you look at the DNA, which kind of looks like a caduceus, looks like the snakes, it's as though the wisdom, the wisdom is there. And it's almost like a, a hint of a, of a deity who wants to have a little joke and a smile, who says, you know, the snake of wisdom, the Sophia is inside each and every one of us. And mm -hmm. that which is not being read is connecting us to past, present, and future. So that those of us who somehow psychically see things, it's inside ourselves anyway, because yeah. we're, we're part of everything else. It's very exciting. I mean, when you look at science in that way, um, it's exciting and, and we're only scratching the surface. Mm -hmm. I think the reason we don't get any further is if we keep just sticking to the physical, we, we, we're not understanding. And right. that's, that's sad. It's, and it, like when I see like the, the pictures, like, like the DNA, what it reminds me of is the symbol of the tree of life, kind of. Yeah. You know? and, and yeah. And so I'm amazed, like, you know, how, how did we know these things before science, you know? But, well, but, you know, but I think it's because it's inside of us. It's, it's who we are. Yeah. And I mean, way back, uh, certainly the Greeks thought, that there was something like the DNA, but their belief, and I can see why, why they would believe it, was that um, somehow from the homunculus, the little man that was in the, in the actual developing zygote, all things would go in, in different places so that cells would have different brains to do different things. They didn't understand that these genes actually were the same everywhere and they were just translated different different parts mm -hmm. were translated 
but you know, the, we can look at it too and say, the trouble we get when we think we know something can lead us far astray. Uh, I love to tell the story of Barbara McClintock. She was a scientist. She was the daughter, I believe, of an MD in the 1920s, and she got a really great education. But being a woman, they weren't going to put her in the front teaching in any university. So she was in the back of one of the labs in, in, a, New York, in a New York college or university. I think it was Columbia. Um, she was in corn genetics. And the reigning theory of the time was that there were chromosomes in the cell. And, you know, we did have um, microscopes back then. I had a, a dear uncle who was a physician and I have his microscope from 1915. <laughs> and it didn't, it didn't magnify very much, but I honor it because I loved him. So they did know that there were something called, you know, the, the chromosomes. And they believed that when a cell was ready to divide, that the chromosomes lined up according to the center to a spindle, they replicated themselves exactly. And then the spindle divided and we had two new cells produced exactly like the mother cell. And this was the reigning theory in the 1920s. So we have Barbara McClintock, Dr. Barbara McClintock in the back of a lab and she's looking at the corn. Now the corn is what people would see during the harvest you know, the corn with all the colors in it. So it's got dark and light and they're very pretty people hang them on their doors. And back then, I mean, I know when I was in genetics, we also had to count the different ones that are black and the ones that were brown and the ones that were whitish and yellowish. And it was pain in the neck because you kind of looking at a piece of corn, you don't really want to have to count how many of the kernels you have. Anyway, so as she did this, she decided to start out as though she knew nothing. Now this is, this is a lovely place for me because I always feel I really don't know anything. She started out as though she knew nothing and said she wanted to have a feeling for the organism. She has a book out actually that is feeling for the organism. Let the organism speak and let me see what it tells me about chromosomes. Well, lo and behold, she found out that it's not so simple that chromosomes don't line up in the center of a cell, reproduce themselves exactly, and produce two daughter cells that are identical to the first cell that divided. In fact, there's something called recombinant mm -hmm. genetics, that somehow the chromosomes wind on each other, and the top of one may join the bottom of another, and we've got daughter cells that are not identical. Do you know it took 30 years for Western science to begrudgingly admit she was right because they had the foundation. They were the big strong arms that felt this was dogma. They pronounced this is the way a cell divides, how different things would be if we looked and said, maybe what we think we know is not really the way things are. And let's, let's find out, let's go, and let's pretend we know nothing and see what the answer is. Every time that we form a hypothesis, we're already prejudiced because we're already putting our eyes in a particular place, in a particular tissue if it's in the body, and a particular type of organization. We are not looking to say, what stands out here? And in the 30 years later, the electron microscope was developed and they begrudgingly had to admit 
because it was shown under the microscope that this mm -hmm. brilliant woman in the 1920s was right. And then she was put up for Nobel Prize eventually. But so I like to look at that for everyone and say, look, we think we're so smart. We think we know something. Mm -hmm. I, for one, know I know nothing because everything I tried to study always led to a thousand more questions than <laughs> any of the answers that it gave. Uh, I live in a house that, that looks like a library. Um, I just, I finish with one thing and I want to study something else. But most of all, I want to remember what my real position is here. And that's what I think is, is the role for every one of us. Who are we? Why are we here? We have to stretch our hands out to help one another, to make it to the future and make it to that gate that leads us back to where we were born from. Um, but we've kind of screwed things up along the way. And I think we've got some work to do. Yeah, we do. <laughs> but it, it's interesting, you know. Um, I, I think this is more, more, more and more people are, are becoming interested in this topic. And I think more and more people now are sort of coming back around to this idea, like, of asking the, the real, the most basic question, you know, of who and what am I? Where did I come from? You know, like those basic questions that we we kind of strayed away from them, obviously. Um, so I have one last question before we wrap this up. Okay. And this is the question that I, I, I typically will ask a lot of people when I'm talking about this to topic. Like, I mean, you, you've kind of already made it evident that you, you believe that things are just not random and that there is some kind of organ organization and, and probably you know something that people would call uh, we call god mm -hmm. um but one of the, the analogies that i i kind of like is like you know i don't not i'm not i don't really go by like this christian idea of god there's some some old guy in the sky telling not people what to do but the, but the one that i kind of have have adopted for myself is it came from yogananda which is the idea of God being this great cosmic dreamer, mm -hmm. you know, and, and, and some, you know, there's, there's just this consciousness, this consciousness is like, well, what am I going to do? So it, it dreams and it, you know, and, and then it starts dreaming and then the dreams themselves start dreaming. Mm -hmm. And then those dreams start dreaming. And, and all of a sudden you have this endless expanse of consciousness and its creations. Obviously, you've said it exactly what I believe. I do not believe in either a male or a female god or goddess <clears throat> sitting somewhere dictating, listening to our petitions and saying yay or nay. This is not, not my belief. And I love the idea, yes, of the cosmic dreamer. Um, I basically, and in, in certainly in the, the medical field, I would say, well, it's a great energy. But for my own belief, I, I love to call this creative energy not only a dreamer, but the great beloved. And I go back, what you said goes back even further than Yogananda, goes back to ancient Egypt. Most people look at the Egyptian temples and imagery as um, something polytheistic, that, that we've got all of these different gods and, and goddesses. Um, um, this is not really what they believed. They may be the common folk who 
did not really understand what the priesthood did. The belief was that everything was created by the hidden one, who was mysterious, without form, beyond time, um, all powerful and all eternal. And many of the ancient texts will call him Atom. And it's interesting, we go the Adam being mm -hmm. this enter. So it is one that's the hidden one. And, you know, it brings me to remember one of my visits to Egypt because I, I bring people, well, I did before COVID, um, I would bring people on sacred pilgrimage to Egypt. And this one visit, um, I was given so much by so many people um, for the tomb of Tutankhamun. And it was like, Tut's tomb was not my favorite place. It's very small. Um, there's so much more in so many of the others, Ramses the sixth. Seti the first and gorgeous, not my favorite tomb. But I looked at my Egyptian adopted sister and I said, well, look, I think I need to go to Tut's tomb. I said, you know, his name means the living image of the hidden one. Mm -hmm. I said, and I feel like the hidden one has something to tell me. She said to me, no, you don't mean you're going to drag me to the Valley of Kings to go to Tut's tomb. I said, yeah, mm -hmm. I think we're going to do that this afternoon. So on we went and... It was the first time ever that she saw a touchstone completely empty. There were no tourists online to go in. Very unusual. This is the most important place for most people because it's the only one that they know about. So she speaks to the gods and she says to them, look, you know, Janet's been here many times. Let her go down by herself because she's not afraid and uh, nobody's here. You don't need to go down with her. So I go down by myself, Gary. Now I have come to be face to face with the hidden one because I feel like there's a message for me. Mm -hmm. I suddenly approach, if you've ever been in the tomb, there's a brass bar in the front, beyond which is the sarcophagus, in which is the actual mummy of, of uh, young King Tut. All of a sudden, all the lights go out, and I'm there in the dark in the tomb. Now, by the way, it's a very small tomb, I could easily find my way out. This was not going to be a problem. The only thing that did go through my head was I hoped no scorpions were around because yeah. that would kind of make it be a bit uncomfortable. But I was in heaven because I said, I came to be with the hidden one. And this is the divinity that you're talking about, not some old man that sits on a planet north of the moon and you know, has created us and is going to punish us. No, but this is, this is the power of that energy in the beyond that's beyond anything we can imagine because all we're capable of imagining is something we see in the physical and it's beyond the physical. It is the great dreamer. It is the great hidden one that he's powerful. And yes, I have to use the term he or she, but it's beyond he and yeah. she. Well, it got better because when I did come out and one of the gods came down because he was afraid that I would be afraid, I came out there was a great cacophony out there. They were, they were talking in Arabic. And I, I said to Gigi, what's going on? She said, well, you have no idea what just went on. I said, yeah, I do. I was down there. The light went out. I said, and that's perfect. I came to see the hidden one. There's nothing to see because it's an energy beyond anything I can imagine. Uh -huh. No, she said, you don't realize. But there are certain, um, certain tombs are connected so that if one goes out, the other should go out. The only place that went out was where you went in today. The other ones are all on. Only Tut's tomb. Did the light temporarily go out when you entered? Impossible. 
because the lights are supposed to go out in the tombs that are connected on that uh-huh. circuit breaker. So I felt it was a real message and wow. a gift um, to say the divine is that great, yes, the great dreamer. And it's the intention. And that's what the, the Egyptian ancient system was too. It was that intention that rose like a pyramid and created everything that was from the great dream. Uh-huh. So, yeah. yeah that's, it's it's that's interesting it. that you mentioned the word a tomb. I don't know where the other, because it makes me think of this other term called an atnam, which is like considered like the seat of the soul. Okay. Yeah. I, I don't know if it was Hebrew or Greek. It was, yeah, no, and it very much, as I said, when you look at these things and the connections, um, we do grow on the old. We don't always understand. And, and certainly if we go back to Christianity, it grew on a lot of those mm-hmm. things. Um, a lot of what's written in the Bible text come from a lot of the more ancient text that goes back and back, and it all starts from a dream. And mm-hmm. we know that. These are experiences in the dream reality. And even when they're taken to that utmost where people are looking to find the physical of whatever, if they would just stop, look at the experience. I mean, I often am guilty of enlightening people to the fact that certain things they're looking for never, never really happened. But they're important because on a psychic level, they're giving us a message. And that's the message that we should take. Not going and digging. It's not an archaeological dig for some of the the dream material and the mythological material. I mean, I'm not going to go look for the sarcophagus that Osiris was supposedly put in before he was broken apart into 14 pieces. But I am going to look at that myth and say, like a fairy tale, what is it Mm -hmm. actually telling us? And if we bother to look, I think we find truth. And if we bother to look at the divinity, yes, and look into a microscope, look at the beauty of the way that the body works. This is no accident. There has to be an intelligence behind it all. But we can't pin it down to something that looks like a man or a woman. You know, this is, this is taking a great divinity and making it look like an ant. Yeah. And we don't, we don't have the ability to say that it's the hidden one. Mm-hmm. It's, the, it's the one that, that exists beyond time and space eternally. Right. That makes sense. Yeah. yeah. Like, like Buddhists refer to it as like emptiness or something that's just beyond, absolute, something that we're not capable of understanding. And, and like I had somebody on my show not too long ago, and he goes, oh, Buddhists don't believe in God. And I wanted to correct him. I was so tempted to, like, to correct him on that. They, you they, know? they wouldn't understand, and that's why even when you, know, you have the, the saying, well, God is dead, um, understand what that was really meant to mean, that a physical male patriarch sitting on a planet, and as I say, I always love to say, north of the moon, um, <laughs> Yes, that's dead because that's childish. And maybe that appeals to people that don't understand better. And I would never take that from them. They can use the image right. that has meaning for them. And, and that's okay. But if someone is more of a thinker, then they're going to understand that that image is meant to lead them beyond to something that says more. And it's very hard for some people to 
look at emptiness, to look at the hidden one. I mean, they wouldn't understand my experience in a tomb where I'm excited because the lights went out and I could see <laughs> nothing. Um, and then find out that there should have been more than one tomb, that right. the lights could have gone out somewhere other than okay. the room I was in. But some people, and I, I did, I remember being at a, a conference and it was an after death type conference and a poor man in, in a wheelchair um, came up and he believed in a male God um, that his religion had taught him and gave him great, great hope. And unfortunately, the person who was running it turned around and said, well, no, there's, there's no, there's no God that you're talking about. Um, God is an it. And I kind of sat there and thought, no, that's, you know, this, this man is seeing his divinity. Mm -hmm. He's relating to his divinity by an image that has meaning to him. And we have to respect that um, and say, it's okay. But yeah. yes, we think it's like you and I are looking at it on another level and saying, well, what do you really think? Yeah, well, then I would have to say it's the hidden one. And I'm not going to even begin to imagine calling, calling dreamer. But I would never say it either because yeah. that so depersonalizes it. That it's, um, you know, and as I said, this poor, I, I did find that man, by the way, in this big conference, um, you know, an hour later after I had spoken and, and basically, you know, made sure he got a hug in those days and said to him, look, whatever way you imagine the divinity, we all believe in a divinity. And for some of us, it's a male. Others would say, no, it's the female creatrix. That's okay. But beyond it all is the true face of the divinity which is the hiddenness, the eternal nature, and what I love to call beloved. Um, <laughs> it says it all because it was the dream of beloved that mm -hmm. manifests everything that is. Yeah. Wow. What an absolutely beautiful way to end this fantastic interview. You are amazing. Well, and you are an, an absolutely wonderful host to be open to so many different ideas. So thank I you. thank you for the pleasure of being here. Yeah, this was great. You're welcome back anytime. Oh, um, I I'd love to come back. And where can my listeners find you? Uh, they can find me online. Uh, I am on Facebook. And of course, my last name is difficult. So it's P-I-E-D-I-L-A-T-O. Um, I'm also at JanetPedalato.net. I'm at uh, DreamPhD.com, which would make it a lot easier for people. D-R-E-A-M-P-H-D.com. And of course, my mystical dream tarot is available on many of the online bookstores and amazon.com.uk, you know, all over the world. It's translated, I believe, in six languages now. So uh, <laughs> I'm online. Awesome. So, so if you have a chance, just email me all those links. And what I'll do is I'll put them in the notes of this episode so my listeners can check them out when, when they're listening. And I, again, I thank you so much. This was such a pleasure to get to know you, Gary, too. Me too. You're great. Well, so are you. And as I said, this, I'm very happy to know you. And, you know, anytime you have any questions, even with the medicine or whatever, because I do a lot of alternative work. Uh -huh. uh, you know, I, I studied Ayurvedic medicine for five years and uh, herbal medicine for another three. So <laughs> I, do, I, I do the shamanic plus a bit of the uh -huh. ice on that. So and it, it's funny too, because my wife is taking microbiology now. Ah, okay. Because <laughs> she's trying to get into the nursing program. 
I, well, I, I taught nursing, but I also taught, it was always the physiology classes. Mm -hmm. I taught in NYU. I taught in the, the College of Staten Island. Um, and then, of course, I wanted to be home with my family. So I kind of put that career behind me and went for another degree. And that's another conversation um, as a pastry chef, because I love, I love the cooking. But it's alchemical cooking that I do. And it's an alchemical feast, which is another one of my websites. It's bringing the ancestors and the soul into the cooking, into the baking. So it's very, very much the ritual of making, uh, preparing, presenting, and honoring it as a, a great sacrifice and a great honor. So you're honoring the earth, but you're also mm. honoring all those who made it before you. That's interesting. I had another guest not too long ago who was uh, talking about cooking with intention, like, like, you know, cooking with love, basically. And, and then you share the food, you're sharing love. And, well, it's alchemical. And healing. And, it's the alchemical feast, because what it is, is it's, it's the intention. In fact, I have on my website um, something with the particular type of blessing cakes that I would make for all the holidays, for all the gifts. And mm -hmm. yes, it's made with intention, but my work is all about memory. So it's about remembering everybody that tended and nurtured and, and brought the harvest to the table, plus the ancestors that came before us. Uh -huh. So there used to be offerings that were made in the ancient temples. At first, it, they were animals that might have been slaughtered and sacrificed. But then we reached a period of time when people couldn't afford that. They didn't have the animal to put on their own table. And so they made effigies, they made images that looked like the animal, the fruit, the harvest that they wanted. And this was the burnt cake that was made as an offering. And I created an actual mold that I had made um, in the image of Hathor, which is the ancient sky goddess, that she, it was her milk that brought the universe into mm -hmm. the, one of the ancient ones. And so this cake was so that each person who took it as a blessing was also honoring all those who came before so that everyone who ever walked the earth, yes, we are on their shoulders. Everything that they've done, all of the suffering that they have gone through, they got courage and they had strength to survive to the end. And we have that today. So in the baking, in fact, the book that I'm working on with a, a French chef right now is the French festivals. And he's a Michelin star chef. So um, Daniel Ganesh is his name and he's magnificent. Most of it will be his cooking. Uh, mine will be the desserts because he doesn't do desserts. But we're going through the different areas of France. And my part really is going to be the mythology of why do we have the festival? What did it mean? What does it mean to the people that are there? But connecting with all those who ever came to that town. You know, they, they call themselves French today, but they have so much of a wonderful history of everyone who ever went there. And if you're, you're looking at the Northeast, we have a lot of Germanic, we have a lot of English things mm -hmm. that have gone because this is the area. And it's kind of the fellowship of the whole world through the festival that has the myth that honors the food that we eat today. So mine is always far more than just food. And of course, pastry was my big thing, you know, <laughs> making the pastry. 
Yeah. In fact, I, I think as soon as we wrap this up, I'm going to make myself my, a Jersey favorite of pork roll, egg, and cheese. Ah, that is, <laughs> well, wait, keep, keep yourself healthy and be safe. And if you ever back up to New Jersey, I mean, you know, I'd, I'd love we meet in person. That would be yeah. Um, but this, this was great. Thank you so much for reaching out. This was wonderful. Yeah, this is great. Thank you. All right. Keep healthy. You too. Thanks. And I will. I will email you the different places to get in touch. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I'll put um, those in the links. And keep taking that medicine, please. I don't uh, want. I don't want you to be falling in the wrong place. My wife would get mad at me because you would take my driver's license and then she'd have to cart me around. <laughs> and tell her good. Good luck in her microbiology. She's kicking ass at it. <laughs> uh, God bless. All right. Be well. You too. Thanks. Have a great day. Thank you for listening to Everything Imaginable on KGRA Radio. You can reach Gary at everythingimaginable2020.com or email him at everythingimaginable2020 at gmail.com. He's also on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. You can buy t-shirts, coffee mugs, and other merchandise to support the costs of producing this podcast. Click on the merchandise link at the top of his page, www.everythingimaginable2020.com. Oh yes, I almost forgot. You can buy his book, Enlightenment Guaranteed. It's the only book on Zen that you'll ever need, and it's on Amazon. It'll change your life, because remember, everything that exists was first imagined. Hey, if you loved what you listened to, don't forget, rate, review, and subscribe.